Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're uh, continuing this morning with 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I have a, a, a long title because I was going to cover a lot of territory. From demons to glory. That is that Paul is going to talk about supping with demons, but he's going to end the chapter that the point of life is to give glory to God. But he's also going to use a different language. He's going to talk about from nothing, the idol is nothing, to something that is substantial. That is the love of uh, neighbor, the love of Christ, the law of love. And a way of of getting at all of this, I think, is just to talk about from what is meaningless to the fullness of meaning. And so Paul is contrasting two possibilities. You know, you can sup with demons or you can give glory to God. And the Corinthian elite have made, it's actually a kind of great discovery that the idol is nothing. And especially if you were an idolater, this is indeed quite significant. But in and of itself, this is only negative. It's not really sustainable in terms of a meaningful life. The idol is nothing. Maybe this is kind of where we are in our day and age, in what we call post-modernity. A kind of negative moment of naming the idols, of throwing off the law. Paul does say that indeed we are free, that all things are lawful. Getting rid of the fear, the oppressive law, the law of the idol, it's certainly significant. And if your life has been filled with fear, which I think characterizes not just idolatrous religion, I just think that's human religion, that it can be all-consuming. Uchimura Kanzo, who may be the most famous (laughs) Japanese Christian, describes that just walking to school was an ordeal for him because he had to pass by various temples and shrines and each god, you know, each would require a particular thing, a particular prayer, a particular homage, or, and that if you do it wrong, the gods are going to get you. Your house will burn down, that you'll get sick, you'll die. And of course, the gods always get you. You can never serve them enough, you can never do enough. Life under the gods is oppression. So, naming the idol is significant. Naming it is nothing. Now, Paul, I think, might be thought to be reversing himself because he's agreed with the Corinthians. The idol is nothing. And yet, in chapter 10, he describes the worship of idols as demonic. And that's where I want to read from. If you look from verse 14. More specifically, what he's saying is the fellowship surrounding the idolatrous temples is demonic. From verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as two sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices 
participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So there's two kinds of koinonia or fellowship. You know, we can sup with demons, we can sup with Christ. We can dine with demons and there is a demonic koinonia and, and whatever else it is, it is an obstruction to the fellowship, the body of the Lord, the true fellowship. And it is table fellowship. It's a meal uh, that Paul is talking about in both. That they create a relation among the participants. The idol is not anything, and it certainly is not divine. It's not a god as the idolater might imagine it is, but precisely due to this deception, it's demonic. And so, you know, what is the devilish or the demonic in Scripture? Think back to Genesis 3. Uh, it's not a positive ontological counterforce which opposes God. It's a subpersonal entity which would empty out the presence of God. This is demonic. And the role of the devil is to displace God with a lie. That's really what idolatry is. To take nothing and make it an absolute something. What it offers, you know, even the lie in Genesis, but what idolatry does, it offers life, you know, or, or death in place of life, in place of God and absence that God removes himself. You know, think of the knowing. Instead of knowing God, they're going to know the know good and evil, a kind of self-reflective knowledge. As Paul will describe it in Romans, that you trade the knowledge of God, a part, the, the creator for a part of creation, for an, Im, an image of, of a creature or of a man. And so these things are something in that they're, you know, it's a piece of wood, or but it's not a substance on the order. It's not ontologically something. It's nothing made something, made an absolute something. And so we're free from this deception, right? The law of sin and death, maybe we could say. And Paul says down in verse 23, all things are lawful. We have been set free from the law. And what we are set free from, whether Jew or Gentile, is the constraint and oppression that this idolatrous world puts upon us and he's going to expand his notion of idolatry it's just this oppressive system that we might call the law all things are lawful nothing constrains us the idol is nothing so the first movement in Paul's point is this kind of moment of freedom we need to recognize that the law the law of sin and death and in all of its various modes it does not constrain us. It will make you suffer, and we need to realize we don't need to, to suffer. And, you know, maybe it's the law, maybe that's just what it is the law of oppression, the law from which every sort of injustice and evil spring. It, it's not the Jewish law, right? Because these people aren't Jewish. 
They're Gentiles. They've not been constrained by the Mosaic law. They've been constrained by a different law. Well, the, the law that Paul argues is, is all people are under that constrains and oppresses all people, including us. And we're oppressed. You know, maybe we can just say that. We're oppressed by life. I don't know if you remember the old James Taylor song. They will hurt you. They will desert you. They will take your soul if you let them. Don't you let them. People are oppressed by ageism, racism, sexism. We're oppressed maybe by the poor circumstance in our life, by our failed families, by our limitations, by our mental health. You know, by our phys- if, you're not, if you're not constrained now by your physical health, you will be. We all will be. And so meaning in life begins in not letting this constraint, this oppression, this suffering define who we are. The great discovery, you know, he's kind of the, the, uh, a celebrity academic now. Jordan Peterson is a psychologist and he's just publishing books like hotcakes. And basically he's saying one thing, you know, he's saying, well, we're all oppressed, everybody's suffering. But don't let that define you. We're all, you know, you pull yourself together. Don't let your circumstance define you. Make your life meaningful. Relieve, you know, help other people. It's easy to say, I think. But Paul actually brings us up short here. He says that's not enough. The Corinthians are verging on the demonic because to say that the law does not constrain, you need to qualify that. And of course, the whole argument here is in regard to the weak, that appearances, we might say, actually do matter. To eat or not eat in the temple. The power of evil is to be found in mistaken perceptions. Deceived understanding. Being mistaken or, or deceived has an evil effect. That is the effect of evil. The evil effect. A temple a something which amounts to nothing has the power to consume lives. The idol has no real existence, but this applies to all the threats that we face. There is, they're purely symbolic. Whether it's a piece of wood, a piece of stone, a piece of cloth, ultimate value is often vested in this symbol. Maybe it's fashion and appearance, yet some have vested their entire lives in this sort of appearance, and that's the problem, right? The demonic moment of the Corinthian church is maybe one that we all face. Maybe this is our point in history. The Christian truth, there, I think there's a bit of, there's an element of truth in Marxism, in socialism, in modern you know, what's called deconstruction. They've discovered that meaning is largely a social construct and can be manipulated. Marx noted that it was the wealthy who control the levers of power and they then create the law, they create morals. And so his resolution was to let bring the proletariat, the working class, put them in control. That's the 20th century, the bloodiest century on record in history. Maybe 110 million people slaughtered by communism, socialism, Marxism, by that ideology. 
I'm not counting the fascists here. The constraint of the law was lifted. The idolatry of culture was exposed. You know, they beheaded the czar, they beheaded the king. They overthrew the old tradition. And this was, it unleashed the demonic, seemingly. And I believe we're continuing to witness the suspension of the law. That's not a bad thing, but in and of itself, it can be demonic. This is Peter Berger's point, you know, that the constructed nature of reality. Peter Berger's a sociologist at the University of Chicago. A Christian, by the way, but he's never quite fit his Christianity and his sociology together, but he says that our idea of our, they're socially constructed. It's sort of like the, the idol maker in Isaiah. You could go through the same process. He makes the idol and he puts it out there. You externalize it. You make something. That's what culture does. We make things. Then he turns and eats his lunch and then he turns back and he objectifies it. This objectivation that, you know, that in some way it takes on a life of its own. He bows down and worships it and then he internalizes it. So that what we feed into culture, we are that construct, but it then acts back upon us. To recognize or know this may give you a power to deconstruct, to revolt, to undo the power, but apart from some positive counter to this power, revolution is endless. This is the, the Mao, this is Stalin, this is Pol Pot. Revolution just, it just keeps slaughtering people. The murder in their case was inexhaustible. Maybe we could say the same thing about the, the postmodernism, deconstruction. It's endless. Race, gender, even our humanity is a construct in some way that is put upon us. We can redefine ourselves endlessly. We can be L. G, B, Q, T, dot, dot, dot. It can just keep going. It requires an ellipsis at the end because it's an infinite possibility of redefinition. We're freed from the constraints of class, gender, race, but that fact alone may just be complete anarchy. Now, I, I've been, you know, I've talked, Christian anarchy may be a good thing that we're over and against the the principles of this world, but pure anarchy just leads to the unleashing of the demonic. And so Paul puts in place a higher principle, and this is down at verse 23. Look at, let's read from 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat, whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I, I, don't, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
So he's saying there, yes, the idol is nothing. The law does not constrain. All things are lawful. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness of thereof. We can accept that. But this is step one. And step one needs to be followed by love your neighbor. Be concerned for the weak, for their conscience. The danger is that one will move from understanding the idol is nothing to having no regard for the weak and for their conscience. And this Paul equates with supping with demons, I think. Sacrificing the weak. We are not made for law, step one. Step two, we are made for love. We're not simply with the Marxists, the socialists, the deconstructionists in pitting the oppressed against the oppressor. Faith and I went to the True False Film Festival and the last film we saw was the one entitled The Commons. It, it was a film about the University of North Carolina and they have a Confederate monument, Silent Sam. And the students for a two-year period protested against Silent Sam. And all the documentary did, it just showed this protest. And eventually, at some point, the students rope the, the statue and pull it down. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of drama. Some of it's, you know, the students are arguing in a very reasoned way. But a lot of it is people shouting incoherent things at one another. So we watched it. And I, okay, well, that's that. That's the end of that. But then, at the end of the film, those students that had been in the film were there in the audience. And they got up and began to protest the film. They said it was made through the lens of a white perspective. Okay, maybe, and they argued, you know, they got up, they actually gave the, the students space there on the stage. One of them got up and read a statement. But as they began to talk to the director and the uh, producer of the film, they had done everything they could to accommodate, you know, asked them to be part of the film, showed them the film. And of course, I think what came out the students had made their own film. And that was the only one that would have been acceptable. They didn't say that, but I think, you know, it's sort of the, you white people shut up. Maybe there's any number of groups that are weak, as are the Corinthian weak. And certainly we need to search, part of the search for meaning is to throw off the chains of oppression, expose indecent power, you know, naming the idolatrous powers, whether they're political, cultural, religious. Maybe this is the singular goal in postmodern thought. People are oppressed by racism, sexism, class, maybe just circumstance. And life is filled with injustice and naming the powers, you know, is maybe that they're saying that's what makes for a meaningful life. But in and of this self, it just gives rise to revolution, deconstruction. You tear down the, the monument to the Confederate monument. Well, what do you do next? The concrete object served as a, a purpose. And then they latched on to the film itself. The answer is not to empower the oppressed. To be the new authoritarians, you know, we'll have the proletariat, the workers, they'll be the, or we'll have the former slaves now be the slave masters. 
The answer is not simply to free ourselves from the constraints of gender, social class, ethnicity, or various kinds of idolatry. What Paul is doing is attempting to reconstruct, refill imagination, turning the Corinthians from knowledge, rights, freedom, impersonal principles to the valuation of persons, where the value system is gauged by rights, by freedom, People become objects, means to ends. And Paul is attempting to awaken them to koinonia, a fellowship of love. Maybe we could state it in a different way. And Paul almost says this, you know, gnosis, knowledge, knowing may be empowering. The idol is nothing. That's an empowering thing. But it is not an end in itself. We can make the fundamentalist or the conservative Christian error and imagine that it is enough to prove that the world, you know, through creation, through Christ, is meaningful. That's true. We might say, oh, those idolaters, those atheists, those nihilists, they have no epistemological room for meaning, no basis for meaning. But that realization, that resource, that potential in and of itself is not yet anything at all. Let me state it stronger. Maybe it's demonic. To leave it at that. Without love, it's certainly not glory. And that's where Paul's taking us. On the other hand, meaning apart from this resource that I think we have as Christians, you know, the continual protest against oppression, is just negation, continuing revolution, continual social rearrangement, continual striving for a properly gendered identity. So the first is a resource for a life of meaning without the reality. And the second is an attempt at meaning without the resource. So we might imagine that just because we have the meaningful resource, the epistemological resource, oh, that's meaning. That's meaningful. No, that's not meaningful. Paul says you have to move on. Yes, the idol is nothing, but you have to move on to what is helpful and loving. And this, uh, let me read the conclusion of the chapter as a conclusion. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Westminster Confession directly references 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says that the chief end of man is to give God the glory, is the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's meaning. Now, unfortunately, you remember this Humpty Dumpty. You remember when Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall and Alice comes along and he says, glory. And she says, well, what do you mean? He said, well, that means whatever I want it to mean. 
Glory is a kind, it can be a very ambiguous word, but Paul means something very specific. He's saying that glory fills out meaning. Giving glory to God is to be found for Paul in the loving servanthood of Christ. Paul says that like Christ, he has become the servant of all. Here, meaning is to be lived out such that every act, eating or not eating, can be meaningful. Actually loving, actually caring for the weak. It does not involve taking the position of the strong, but means becoming weak. We've already done this. Paul impoverishes himself, refuses money. He works at a trade. He takes a low social status. He's even willing to become a vegetarian. If eating meat offends some, he said, I won't eat it. I'll just become a vegetarian. He says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Now salvation in this context is not referencing conversion, but it's talking about departure from the crushing oppression of the culture, the culture of Corinth to which the weak are they're susceptible, and the Corinthian cultural elites are providing no relief. Paul does not presume, you know, he doesn't do what the students did for two years, shout down the opposition. They brought bullhorns, so literally just shout in people's ear. and they, You can't hear anybody but the one with the bullhorn. That's what an authoritarian does. Paul precisely does not do that. He doesn't shout them down, but he sums up his argument in chapter 11, verse 1, is actually the conclusion. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So it's not enough to name the idols, expose the power structures, tear down the high places, or suspend the law. That's step one. We need to do that. In place of the oppression of the law, the freedom of the law of love is necessary. And this glorious love, it's necessary because there's the fullness of meaning, but it's also the only thing that's sustainable in terms of life. It's true, we must fully recognize our freedom from the law. It's always a law that would cast out, demonize, scapegoat, choose death for some that others might live. To simply expose this law, realize its weakness, recognize it's nothing, nothing is there, that it's a human construct. Maybe this is what it takes for the Messiah to come because that's the power of Christ, right? Christ defeats the principalities and powers, but he does not, however, leave us in a vacuum. Paul and Jesus call us to follow them, to imitate their lives, to glorify God in what we do. And this is where meaning kicks in. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, 
or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.